Can you guys hear me okay? Hi, Alpine. Yeah, we can hear you. Are you okay, up? great. I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good. Your first time on Twitter Spaces. This is my first time on Twitter Spaces. So thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, this, if this is your first time, uh, Town Hall is a show hosted by GrowSF. And GrowSF is a community of residents building a more inclusive and livable San Francisco. I'm Bilal Mahmood. I'm one of the hosts and co-hosts of the Town Hall Show. Uh, I'm personally curious about how our city works. Uh, I've been in San Francisco since late 2014, and I found that there's always so much to learn. And I'm Joel Ingardio, Bilal's co-host. I've been in San Francisco since 1998, so I've seen a lot. Uh, my role on this podcast is color commentator, so I'm the person who interjects notable tidbits here and there. And GrowSF, those who are unfamiliar, is a group focused on educating people on local issues, increasing civic engagement, and publishing election voter guides. And that's why our town hall show features elected officials like Joaquin, civil servants, and community members from different perspectives to discuss problems facing our city. And so today we'll be interviewing San Francisco's uh, assessor recorder, Joaquin Torres. Uh, he's new on the job. Um, longtime assessor uh, Carmen Chu left the office back in February to become our city administrator. The mayor appointed Joaquin to fill the assessor role. Uh, it is an elected position, and Joaquin will have to run for the office again uh, early next year in another election. But before taking the assessor role, Hawking was the director of the City Hall's Office of Economic and Workforce Development. He started his City Hall career in the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Services, and he currently lives in the Inner Sunset with his wife. Uh, thank, you for, uh, thank you for joining us, Assessor. Oh, it's great to be here with you guys. Thanks for yeah. having me. Well, great to have you. So the first question is we need to figure out what the heck is an assessor and, <laughs> and why do we need one, let alone elect one in San Francisco? By the I'm, way, I, we should tell our listeners that your full title is assessor recorder. So we need to figure out the recorder part too. Um, the way I see it is that you assess how much properties are worth throughout the city and you record marriages. But tell us more about what an assessor <laughs> recorder does and more importantly, why should we care? So, um, Thank you for these questions. I think that's one of the uh, jokes that I have whenever I start off in any meeting is who, who can raise their hand and tell me that they know what the assessor does. And everyone very sheepishly and very um, uh, uh, humbly says they have no idea what the assessor does, nor what value they provide to the city. And so I say, okay, great. So we're on equal footing here, and I can share with you exactly um, why this is an important role and what we do. Um, there's a great um, uh, story about uh, two negotiating parties who are trying to figure out how to form a government, and one of them really wants to get started, and the other one wants to talk about garbage and taxes, and the uh, person who really wants to get started with government says, I did not come here to talk about garbage and taxes, and the other person who's already formed a government says, sir, if you want to form a government, you need to know that government is garbage and taxes. So where those taxes are applied, how they benefit general funds, how they benefit infrastructure, starts with stable and secure resources like property taxes. Um, and in San Francisco proper, there's a $13.1 billion general fund budget uh, that we have uh, in the city and county. Uh, your parks, your schools, your roads, your emergency services, your programs to support small businesses and communities that were so essential throughout the pandemic. Um, uh, $3.7 billion 
of those dollars, so around 28% of the general fund budget for San Francisco comes from the work that we do, which is identifying, discovering, and assessing all real property uh, and property in San Francisco, um, and thereby enabling the city to make decisions about how to allocate those funds to best serve the city's goals uh, and interests. That's on the uh, assessment side. On the recording side, yes, you record merit certificates, but also we're responsible for transfer taxes as well when properties change hands um, and applying uh, the tax rate there so that we can ensure that we're collecting uh, on those transfers again to support uh, the city budget and our efforts to support city services. So B Bilal, Bilal, let me, I want to ask a follow-up question. I know I was going to throw it to Bilal next, but my follow-up question for you, Joaquin, is you talked about the three billion and change that your office is able to assess, or, or you 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 say these are property taxes, and they well, there's a, there's about three hundred billion in value, but after you apply the tax rate, you, you get to about three point seven billion dollars in those Got resources. It. Yeah. Got it. And it's money that we can spend on our roads and parks and all that good stuff, right? That's so right. My follow-up question is: back in the the horrible Trump era, and when Carmen Chu was the assessor, there was a lot of like um, fear that the federal government would would punish San Francisco and with, withhold funding and whatnot. And Carmen Chu went around and said, let me see if I can find more property to assess that might have been under the radar. We, we overlooked or, you know, and she like ginned up another, I don't know, a few hundred million bucks to, to help our coffers. <laughs> like, so is that, is that the importance? Is that one example of why it's important that we have a good assessor? Well, I, I think there's a there's a reason that the office has won good government awards because it's such an important function. Again, as I mentioned, identify, discover, and assess, right? And so much of the work that Carmen Chu did, the assessor, was really modernizing the office. Uh, sounds like a catchphrase, but really it means that you can have visibility uh, into your functions, visibility into where you're spending your time and resources, and visibility on how you can reallocate your operations to better serve the city's interests. Um, should I be spending my time uh, over here? Um, or should I be spending my time over here where there may be more value to make sure that we're not missing anything? Um, case in point, there was a transfer tax audit program that was started by Carmen um, uh, that I'm very proud to be continuing because since its inception uh, around the middle of her term uh, as assessor recorder, uh, she was able to discover about $70 million uh, in additional uh, revenue that's beneficial to the city. And so I think that's a, an extraordinary example of just diligent nose to the grindstone work that ends up benefiting the city overall. So yes, having a keen eye, leaving no stone unturned is a part of our process and leveraging and organizing our resources to make that happen. Great, Bilal? Um, yeah, so I'm actually curious. So like, I, we assume that being the assessor recorder and assessing taxes is a kind of like matter of fact role and it kind of like is re relative procedural but i imagine behind the scenes it can be pretty complicated and there's actually been maybe some crazy issues or challenges you had to face especially amidst a pandemic um what is one of the most interesting facets of being an assessor recorder that people would maybe take for granted and don't necessarily appreciate the complexity about and then second maybe what's one of the biggest challenges that you've faced uh, maybe with respect to that over the last year that your office has had to adapt to in the pandemic? 
Sure. Well, I think obviously, you know, as so many of us had to um, had to pivot and switch into how are we going to work remotely? Um, and the majority of, of our staff throughout the pandemic was working remotely. We did have some folks because we wanted to make sure that we were open for business for the needs that people had throughout, that we had some folks who were coming in, uh, some staff members that were coming into the office uh, throughout. And I'm very grateful for their service throughout that time. As for so many people that throughout the pandemic um, made sure that they were available on the ground as disaster service workers throughout the pandemic to make sure that the needs throughout were being served. I know it's hard to remember, and many of us don't want to remember um, where we were about 20 months ago um, when the shelter-in-place began to happen, so much uncertainty, when the announcements were being made at the national level, the state level, and the local level, and the global level. Um, and certainly going back and watching some of that footage, I think it you know calls up so much fear that people were having. And so I think first and foremost, it was making sure that we as a staff um, were taken care of. I know that was important to Carmen throughout um, uh, the city administrator, Chu, throughout uh, her time as assessor recorder was certainly important for me, uh, leading in the Office of Economic and Workforce Development and making sure that people knew that uh, they were being cared for, but that we also had an extraordinarily important job to do to ensure that we were serving the people of the city. Um, How many and people so many do you have on, on staff um, in the office? Um, in, in our office, about 176 people. Uh, wow. Staff. And how would you break yeah. down like their, are they all assessors or like, what is an assessor versus a recorder? Like how would you break down like the staff and their responsibilities? Oh, well, sure, sure. Um, I will come, I will come back to that in one second, but I think, can you guys hear me? I'm sorry. I just got interrupted for a second. Yep. We can hear you. Okay, great. Sorry about that. Um, I think part of the, part of the important part of the work, um, uh, Facing, um, we're really around the uncertainty of what was going to be happening to the resources that we were relying on to support city services, right? Um, and making sure that we actually had a handle on where value was going to be, where value was going to be created, um, and where value may be lost um, to ensure that we were going to be able to um, service the city. But um, in terms of the, the staff itself for the office of those 170 people. You're talking about um, uh, deputies who oversee administration and finance, the infrastructure of the office. You're talking about um, uh, the property uh, and the real property appraisers. You talk about our um, our folks who work on um, standards and mapping and special projects, residential um, appraisers, the appeals team, the audits team, um, the public service team uh, who deal with the front of office work, the questions that people have um, about this very Byzantine work um, uh, that we do in, and complicated work uh, that we do and complex work that we do. Um, uh, and, th and of course, just those that are working some of the modernization projects uh, to ensure that we're actually operating in the 21st century. And that's an ongoing project uh, for us right now. So I want to talk a little bit about, like, I know at, at first blush, people will say, oh, assessor, that sounds like a pretty boring office. But actually, San Francisco's assessor, assessor's office has had quite its share of, of dramatics, uh, drama. <laughs> um, prior to Carmen Chu, uh, who was the assessor just before you, the assessor's office actually had a very troubled history. Um, it had a dysfunctional bureaucracy, millions of dollars went uncollected at any given year. Um, among the predecessors, among you know, assessors of the past, one was convicted of accepting bribes, another resigned after accusations of nepotism. So there, you know, it's got a salty storied history. Uh, and then when Carmen came into office, she inherited 
uh, at that time, 200,000 properties on physical paper files, no digital, no electric, electronic backups. So if there was a fire or like water damage from the sprinklers, like they're, they're just gone. So, and she was working on this computer system from the 1980s, like, like from that movie, The War Games with the green screen and the blinking cursor. Um, you know, so she had to transform all that, bring into the 21st century. Um, what else needs to be fixed? And like now that, that you carry the baton, what, what do you carry on of her legacy? What still needs? To, what didn't? What was she not able to finish that you need to finish? Well, I, I think it's a. I think it's a couple of things. Um, the the first part of the work, um, just getting and proving the proof of concept, and the business personal property team uh, was the first one to move into what we call the smart system. I don't want to get too wonky on on this, but essentially allowing us to move away from those black and green screens and into something that's much more user-friendly and visible and coordinated across teams so that we can see the work that we're doing with each other, we can track the work that we're doing with each other um, uh, in a very consistent and coordinated manner, which is uh, a lot as we move through these processes um, and moving that into the next phase, which is real property, right? All of the um, the office buildings and residential buildings, moving those databases into these systems so we can do the same. Um, we just went live with that business personal property system earlier this year, um, right before we closed the role, which is one of the major accomplishments uh, that uh, City Administrator Chu uh, did during her time. Um, uh, it had been uh, decades since that work had been accomplished in terms of closing the role, and uh, she made it possible. So I was very lucky to be um, the assessor at the time during this previous um, this previous time period to close the role on time for the third time. And now we're, as we move through the second phase of the transition uh, into modernizing um, our work, that we can move into the fourth year of closing the role on time, which I'm looking forward to uh, with the team, especially as we're starting to move into this new hybrid environment of bringing uh, our workforce back into the office. Uh, again, we've been working remotely throughout, but now doing this hybrid model of two days in, three days out uh, as we continue the work. And, and, and just what about the, you know, we've all in San Francisco seen the news of the, the corruption scandals at City Hall and the indictments and, you know, it, it, it's fresh. It's like it's been happening, you know, since the early 2020. Um, do you think the assessor's office is a, is a success story in the sense that here was a place that was as corrupt as anything, and yet it's really shining now? Like, so it gives us hope that the other offices can can follow suit. Like, what's your view on that? Well, I, I just first I, 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 I want to say um, uh, that I very much appreciate the question as a journalist, uh, Joel, um, who, in the words of Gay Talese, that are, are you know, you represent the restless voyeurs who want to see the the warts on the world and the imperfections uh, in people and places, and certainly the city has had its uh, its story about those. Uh, those experiences, right? But but what I think is that when it comes to a success story, uh, I think the assessor's office is an emblem of what's possible in government. Um, that when there is not to be tried about it, but when there actually is a will, that there is a, a way to uh, achieve something. And I'm very lucky that I was handed uh, the machinery that Carmen began to put into place that I'm able to um, uh, to move on and to further its implementation track. But I do think that, you know, the fairness that we do our work, um, uh, in which we do our work, the accuracy that we pride ourselves on, uh, the integrity uh, that we apply uh, to our work as we work where to find value, what is fair, 
what is accurate. Um, that is something that I've learned that the teams that, are, that work within the assessor recorder's office ground themselves in. And so I'm very proud to be part of this office now. It's the integrity that I brought to my work at OVWD. It's the integrity that I brought to my work um, at the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. And it's certainly the integrity that I want to see continue throughout because I have a deep, deep belief and respect in what can be made possible through good government, meaning that people don't have a sense of fear when you say, we're the government and we're here to help you, but rather uh, they can have a different experience with us because we're accessible, we're fair, um, uh, and we're honest. Great. Yeah, good to hear. Um, so continuing on that on that lens, actually, and you touched upon this a little bit earlier, Joaquin, um, we touched upon the, the pandemic and the impact that it's had on your office. Um, coming into 2022, what do you are you still worried about? What are you still worried about? What's top of mind, and what are some things that you think your office might change into the next year uh, to sure. continue to adapt into a post-pandemic world? Hopefully, post-pandemic world. There, there are some things that I'm ex that I'm excited about, and I, and again, I think it goes back to the previous question around um, you know having an infrastructure that I was given that provided visibility into how the office works in a very clear manner, and where we can collectively improve the work that the office does. Um, you know, having that infrastructure in place, the tracks for the railroad, as it were, um, uh, is extremely helpful so that you can actually do more creative things that connect us to the conversations, uh, civic discourse that's going on within the city. And what's an example of that certainly is the conversations around racial equity um, uh, and discourses that we can have around that work, not because it's important, not only because it's important and it's been essential and been occupying our lives uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, uh, and, po and post George Floyd, but because there's a direct connection in terms of the history of San Francisco um, that we are seeking to correct. So there was a bill that was signed by, um, by the governor a few weeks ago, AB 1466, um, which is going to allow us to move proactively into discovering racially restrictive and racist language within covenants um, that we will be able to correct where individuals be based on their race were actively excluded um, uh, and disincentivized from purchasing homes in specific areas and neighborhoods. And for us to be able to push and do that work of finding that language and deeds um, over a collective time period at the beginning of the, uh, in the 1900s onward, uh, to ensure that we're locating that language, that we're working with the public to discover which deeds have that, lang have that language, and then having that language struck through our partnership both on the recorder side of the house, where those deeds were um, initially recorded, and of course, working with the city attorney's office to ensure that we're able to further that work. And I'm very excited to be working with um, our new city attorney, uh, David Chu, who was just sworn in yesterday. That seems, but in, that's, that's really interesting and um, really disturbing that's a part of our history as well. Um, is there an example you can give of where that's happened and just to kind of like really solidify kind of like how bad this issue is um really curious. Well, it's a uh, yeah. it's a question it's it's less a question of legality than it is around um uh culture and history and mm -hmm. um there have been many conversations in the past around this type of work that maybe it should have been let and the the question for us has been um the question for us has been uh 
where are we able to address the community pain and hurt associated with this work being done? Where in certain parts of the city, in certain neighborhoods of the city, people were, were not allowed to purchase a home in these areas because homeowner associations had worked together to ensure that these were white-only neighborhoods. Um, is there specific uh, neighborhoods in San Francisco that you've seen this be at highest incidence so far? No, not, not, not yet. That's going to be the work ahead, and I'd be happy to kind of come Got back it. on as we start furthering the work. So we have a few months to kind of get the infrastructure in place and start discovering yep. and finding some initial findings so we can actually answer those questions, which is one um, that's going to be important for me to discuss, right? Um, yeah. But when I, when I had a conversation about, you know, is this just a symbolic effort for us to pursue, um, uh, there was an African-American woman that I spoke to, um, who had said that, no, it's, that's not symbolic at all, because these are the realities that our community faced when we were trying to purchase property. Um, an example in her case was, and I can't remember if this was not in San Francisco, but certainly uh, in California, where they had tried to purchase a property. Um, the white real estate uh, person at the time, generations ago, had said, uh, this is a white-only neighborhood, you need to look someplace else, um, was not being favorable to the family. And so they sought out a black real estate agent who actually ended up helping them um, locate a, a home. And, and eventually, they were one of the few black homeowners in this white-only neighborhood. Um, where they were able to pursue um, uh, their path to home ownership and building wealth through the acquisition of real estate, um, and not only that, but because of the financing that was that was needed, that real estate agent that was from their community also helped them uh, with a down payment for that home to ensure that they actually had the resources to go above and beyond and make their family dream possible. I think when people think about government, quite often you move past. Um, conversations of the past. Uh, you move past the conversations of wrongs that were committed earlier in history. And that's a, a change that you're starting to see and you are continuing to see. And this is a part of that narrative change, that we, we have the integrity to face um, uh, past wrongs and that there are multiple ways in which they, be, they can be corrected, both legally and culturally. And that's why I'm excited to do that part of the work. Now, that's that component. I think that some of the work that's coming up right now are the number of appeals um, uh, in terms of people that are questioning whether or not the value that was assessed for their properties um, uh, were fair and accurate, um, especially in relationship to the impacts they may have experienced during the pandemic. And I think that, that one of the things we'll be looking out for is what is the weight of that appeal load that we will have to be pursuing at the Board of Appeals in relationship to the ongoing work of, of making sure that we're able to close the role again on time in the midst of a conversion process uh, and in the midst of doing our daily, our daily work, which is, again, that identify, discover, and assess. So there, there's a famous house on the backside of Mount Davidson on the west side of San Francisco. It was built in 1957 at a cost of $37,000, so you know, pretty cheap. Uh, it's worth $2.3 million today. Um, this house, baseball star Willie Mays tried to buy yeah. in 1957, African-American uh, baseball player for the Giants, and was denied. Uh, you know, eventually, I mean, Chronicle wrote a front-page story about it, and eventually he was able to buy a house elsewhere. But it underscores what you're talking about, Joaquin, this horrible history that we have right here in San Francisco. Um, and if you think about it, if our grandparents bought that house in 1957, uh, they were allowed, if they were allowed to buy it, if they were white and they bought it cheap, think of the wealth that was, that was transferred through generations to today. Because if 
if, if I was in, if I inherited that house today, I couldn't afford it, right? But I get to live here because my grandparents could buy property when it was cheap. But if you were a black family, you didn't get that wealth creation. And then when it came time when the laws changed and you were allowed to uh, buy property, you didn't you couldn't enter the market because the prices were so high because we didn't build enough housing. Is, so is there something as the assessor? That you can do with the office uh, going forward in present day to yeah that's it make it easier make it easier to build housing make it e- like is, is there something you can do as an assessor well I, I to, to create more housing? I think the 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 opportunities for for acquisition and building wealth is something I'm focused right now so Carmen uh, Chu started in her office um, uh, a family wealth series and she or rather a family wealth forum where uh, she would bring people together to. Um, from all communities to who didn't have the same access to um, uh, lawyers um, uh, and tax attorneys uh, to help them through the process, but rather brought together pro bono attorneys, brought together staff, brought together nonprofits who could help with financial planning, wealth building series, um, information FAQs on those who are homeowners uh, today on how to um, prepare uh, on an annual basis for their obligations around property tax payments, um, and, and then also at the same time uh, pursuing some estate planning so they could start thinking about how to pursue um, the transfer of that wealth that they worked so hard to create. And I think that's one of the big places that I wanted to expand that level of work. I'd already started out um, during the first few months in office of creating a family wealth series, taking advantage of the online experience and actually seeing how many points of contact I could have in different communities about bringing our office's work to the public through webinars that people could uh, access online. And that proved to be very, very useful. Of course, it doesn't take the place of those organic conversations that can happen outside of the um, uh, the Zoom domain, but but it certainly has been very helpful for those uh, at all income levels to understand what their obligations were and how to plan uh, and how to plan for the future. And that's something I'm excited to pursue um, uh, in the upcoming months as well, uh, leading into next year too. On top of that, there's also what was passed in the midst of the pandemic uh, in November uh, of last year in 2020 was Proposition 19 that uh, did two things, change the rules on how uh, property could transfer from parents to children or grandparents to children, and also provided at the same time flexibility to seniors 55 years and older um, to be able to transfer uh, their base year values to other counties uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, Of course, anchored in the state of California uh, under the needs to perhaps move from one area to another based on natural disasters like earthquakes or fires, but also for those who might want to have the flexibility to move to full, have full flexibility among counties in California, uh, up and down the state, um, uh, to downsize, um, to be closer to family, uh, to maybe find a home that was better suited to their individual needs as they as they desired to age in place. And that's something that we'll be working on in the coming months ahead as well, because uh, it happened very, very quickly. Uh, the implementation of Prop 19. It was November of 2020, and by the middle of February of this year, uh, the first component was enacted. And then in April, the flexibility for seniors, those 55 years and older and those with disabilities, uh, that became active in April. So a very, very fast turnaround, lots of complexity involved. And I've been meeting with the California Association of Assessors up and down the state to ensure that we have an understanding about where we can provide better clarity to the public uh, on those issues. 
issues. And there's a conversation right now that's taking place um, around should there be a repeal of that first component of Prop 19 because many, many families, and particularly communities of color, uh, who may have been pursuing opportunities to generate wealth, um, might have found themselves in a predicament because of the timeline associated with needing to become in compliance uh, with these new restrictions that were placed on their ability to plan ahead and transfer that wealth in a timely uh, in a timely manner for themselves based on their needs. So I think there's a lot of work to be done uh, in the months ahead. I, I wanted to ask you about the what we can imagine the assessor to be. I mean, we've talked we've talked a bit about what it is, but what can it be beyond what but beyond just the basic definition? So, for example, when Carmen Chu was assessor, she basically dropped the recorder part of the title. Like when she went out and introduced herself, I, she would say, "I'm the assessor," and she was kind of branded, "I'm your neighborhood assessor." Mm -hmm. And I, as you mentioned, she did those those family wealth forums and was doing things that kind of. Um, you know, it would uh, provide something relevant to residents beyond just assessing their property. Yeah. So, so I guess the question is, you know, what do you imagine the role could be, be above and beyond? Like we talked about, you know, the, the, the wrongs of the past, you know, with, uh, you know, I think that's with, it, Joel. Covenants I, and all that. Like, yeah, I, I, is, is there, is there, yeah. No, I, I think that's, I, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I think that the, like I said, the best, um, the blessing that I've received from the work that um, uh, Carmen and the office did together was uh, setting up that infrastructure so we could focus on some other areas in which we could do good, um, how we can further that neighborhood work. You know, that's obviously deeply powerful and important to me because of how I started um, my career in city government, doing neighborhood services, um, leading uh, the first Invest in Neighborhoods uh, program to support small businesses and communities through my previous Office of Economic and Workforce Development. And as we continue the modernization work so that things are easier for the public um, in terms of interfacing with our office, that um, the accessibility and ease through which they can connect with us and um, uh, and find us to be a resource for them is something that I want to continue. And I think that is something that can be can always um, uh, re-communicated to community members so they understand what our office can bring. But also, I think, around these issues of building inter intergenerational wealth, reinforcing the importance of planning, uh, uh, especially through estate planning, so people can be prepared for the eventuality of how they can transfer those resources to their families. And then I think the civic discourse component of when you walk into um, our office, what is that experience that someone is going to have, right? Is it going to be something akin to what we all dread when we go and wait uh, in a DMV line? Um, or is it going to be something different? Is what is reflected on the walls when you first walk uh, in that room going to be more about how you punch a number that makes it easier for you to access a service and pull a ticket? But maybe there's a conversation uh, that is um, prompted by what we display on our walls when you first walk in the room that are related to the work that we're doing, like um, uh, the racially restrictive covenant conversation that, that can take place. And then also having an understanding of someone uh, through our office about where good government conversations can be continued to have. I mean, that's, uh, I, I think, especially important in San Francisco right now, that we can communicate a level of integrity and transparency that is important for the public so they feel good about where their tax dollars, um, how their tax dollars are being assessed fairly, accurately, equitably, 
uh, and also how they're being. And in those right. conversations, in those conversations, can you be or do you see yourself as an advocate? For example, uh, can you and should you advocate for more housing to to correct you know the wrongs of the past? Or like we don't have a public advocate we talk about in San Francisco. Could the assessor's office be that? You're an independently elected office. You answer to no one but the voters. Can you like what can you turn the office into? What more can it? I be? think so. I, I do. I do view myself as a very strong advocate for racial equity. Um, uh, and first and foremost, I need to make sure that I'm leveraging uh, every um, every aspect of what uh, the state constitution um, a- allows me to pursue. Uh, in addition to the revenue and taxation code uh, that guides our work, uh, that we uh, through which we administer uh, our functions, um, and then also being out there uh, on programs like these to talk about the issues related to how we can further opportunities of inclusion for our communities of color specifically. Um, I, I want to take advantage of what we've all been through collectively and the disproportionate impacts that everyone has seen uh, that the pandemic has shown us and be able to be out there when I'm out in public to talk about these issues in a cogent manner um, and supporting the work of extraordinary leaders uh, in the city like Mayor Breed, of course, and also um, of Cheryl Davis, who leads the Human Rights Commission um, through and, and has been uh, such an incredible advocate for communities on the ground. And how can we partner together and further these conversations? Um, uh, and how do all of the areas around advancing racial equity um, apply to the office in particular? Um, first and foremost, that's my first step. How can I best bring the resources and tools uh, that I can bring through this office to the public in a way that helps me be a true ally and advocate of that work? Um, thanks, Great. Pete. I think um, in the uh, as we're moving into the next phase of the uh, interview, we're going to question and answer from the audience. Uh, so just for people who are joining in at this half hour, uh, reminder, this is the Grow SF Town Hall Show, uh, where we focus on, as a group on educating people on local issues and increasing civic engagement. And our town hall show features elected officials and civil servants and community members to share different perspectives and discuss problems facing our city. Today, we're with Joaquin Tor. Walking Taurus, uh, the assessor recorder of uh, of San Francisco. Um, but as we wait for to get questions, uh, if you're interested in asking a question, feel free to tweet underneath the GrowSF uh, post for this this town hall today. Um, but I'll final I'll lob one final question uh, on a on a soft note, Joaquin. Um, in your time as assessor recorder, what's one of the most uh, I don't know amusing, fun, interesting properties that you have assessed or your team has assessed that was uh, that you think would be interesting for us to hear that was surprising or in, or interesting or unique in its own way? Well, it, that's that's interesting because I haven't dived down into into specific and uh, individual properties. It's been more about the systems uh, that are at play, and I think that what's been what's been fascinating for me is that. You know, like many people out there, the assessor's office was um, uh, was something that I very much knew about, but I didn't know at a granular level what the day-to-day was actually like um, uh, and what the opportunities were to engage with the public were going to be um, or how to leverage the resources that we have within the office to help provide educational tools to the public um, that would help them out. Um, and I think that's been one of the most eye-opening experiences of um, being able to see, uh, being able to see people really um, step up 
uh, for community members to help them address like the most basic individual issues uh, that might be uh, that might be affecting them based on information that might be in a system um, that, that wasn't properly um, recorded, correcting those little issues, but nothing too specific that I can think of right now um, uh, that's uh, that's tickled me. No worries. Um, I appreciate the context. Uh, Joel, any other uh, last question before uh, we open up to Q&A from the audience? And if you're in the audience, please feel free to uh, tweet underneath the GrowSF uh, tweet for this event, and we will uh, review them and ask Joaquin as we go through. Yeah, I had one question. So, Joaquin, are you you're going to be on the February 15th ballot. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I have, uh, I have two elections coming up in, uh, in 2022. Um, I plan to, uh, be on both ballots. Um, and the first one is going to be on February 15th. Um, right now that's, uh, and that's coming up right around the corner. And then that's to serve the remainder of the term that I'm sitting on right now, um, which is required, uh, uh, via the charter for that any appointed official must stand for the next, uh, election. Um, that's coming up. We thought that might be earlier uh, last year during the um, during the governor's recall, um, but then because of uh, some of the dates and the timelines associated with the announcement of that election, that was then moved to the next election. We thought then that was going to be uh, maybe just June uh, of, of next year, but then because of the school board recall being certified, then it was determined that I would stand on that ballot um, uh, uh, for the voters for the first time, and then I'm going to run for the full four-year term. Uh, in November of next year, uh, to begin a, the new four-year term in the beginning of 2023. And for this uh, to finish out Carmen's term on the, on the February ballot, has anyone uh, is anyone running against you, or are you, are you running on a? I'm knocking on wood right now. If you can hear that, uh, I'm currently running unopposed right now, and I'm. Is there a deadline to file? Um, it's it, it's coming up. It's 88 days before that February 15th date. So I'm looking forward to starting getting my paperwork together and formally filing. I see. Got it. And so, and then, if no, if you run unopposed in February, someone could still run against you in November. That's correct. Right? That's correct. But again, I'm knocking on wood that I'll be doing such a good job that no one will see the need to do that um, uh, because uh, it'll be very, very hard to have a conversation about why I should be any other place but serving the people within this role. Got it. So we have uh, one question come in. Um, I think it'll be a fun one. Uh, Armand asks. Uh, do you know how to play the recorder? And if so, um, are, are you good at it? Um, the only instrument I know how to play is the piano um, uh, with maybe some old school sixth grade lessons in the tenor saxophone, which I could never remember how to pick up if you gave it to me. Um, but definitely the piano, but no recorder. <laughs> I think I remember playing the recorder in middle school. Um, don't think I was very good at it, though. <laughs> oh, no, I think it was... Did we all play recorder in elementary school? Maybe uh, was it required? I, I don't know if it was required or not. Yeah, um, but awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Joel, any of the last questions that we see in the audience? Oh, I, I can't see the questions. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm relying on you. <laughs> Got it. Um, uh, we have one more. Um, uh, so, in the you mentioned that, uh, and I think this was interesting to me as well. Never really expressed how, uh, never understood how, like, it's very clear land and tax policy uh, are a strong component of social justice reform. And uh, what are other facets of our government, maybe outside of the scope of the assessor recorder, that you think are super important for us to address and the government's responsibility to ensure social justice reform and addressing the ills of the past? Um, well, 
I think this is one of the most important areas that we can begin to do work in, in terms of how people are able to have the economic stability to pursue their life dreams uh, together as families or, or as individuals um, on behalf of their communities or just on behalf of themselves um, uh, here in the city. And I think that the path to economic development uh, for specific communities, I think, is a huge issue for us. Uh, who has access to those opportunities? I think the importance of these these clinics that we can hold and these webinars that we can provide right now, these resource fairs that we can produce um, are essential in part of the work of leveling the playing field uh, and knowing where the need is for the API communities in the city, um, for the African-American and black communities in the city, and certainly for the Latino population within the city, um, where people might not feel that there's a connection to be made between government and their communities in this very specific way. And also the work that the treasurer and tax collector does through their Office of Financial Empowerment um, for people who are in need of additional, um, uh, additional resources and education to kind of understand the basics of how do you take care of yourself? How do you um, how do you finance your dreams? Um, uh, what what is the relationship between your dreams and debt? Um, uh, what are the proper and appropriate terms in which you should be considering that debt? How can you be best prepared so you're not surprised by what your obligations may be around property taxes? How can you be sure that you're being educated in the right way so that you know that the asset that you've that you've acquired is something that actually has value for you and your dreams once you're gone? Um, I think these are extraordinarily important parts about advancing uh, racial equity, specifically within the, the, um, the roles and functions uh, of our office and providing that level of access. And also, I'm hoping that, you know, conversations that I can have or ideas that I can bring into the public domain can inspire others within bureaucracies to think a little bit differently about what other opportunities can they open up within their perspective departments. That certainly has been some of the influence that I've received from Cheryl Davis and the Human Rights Commission um, in showing me some opportunities and paths about how we can be more creative um, within the parameters of a law that we need to abide by uh, to provide opportunities for people and finding every way that we can, that we can do that. I'm, I'm very proud of the way in which we created loan programs for the first time and grant programs for the first time for the African-American community during the crisis where there had never been one before. Um, and we were able to set that up from scratch um, because of the best practices we instilled in the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, um, being able to support organizations that increased access for immigrant entrepreneurs throughout the pandemic, who we all know were also disproportionately impacted because of resources that were not made available to them. I think the work that was exceptional around uh, the family relief fund so that those irrespective of their documentation could have access to resources when the federal government was not yet ready to provide them to them so that they could be safe and successful and take care of their families at the bare minimum throughout the pandemic. I think um, whether you talk about food or finances um, or wealth and how to build it and education, uh, these are the most ex extraordinary opportunities we have to advance racial equity uh, in our communities. And I'm excited to be part of that, both in my previous role um, and previous roles and the ones I currently hold and want to continue doing this work. That's great. Um, thanks for us answering, Joaquin, and thanks for joining yeah. us as well. Um, as we wrap up, um, last question is, uh, in GrowSF, we're always trying to uh, increase civic engagement from our community and all the residents in San Francisco. What are ways that residents in San Francisco should engage with your office, and what are ways that um, they can help or get involved? I think one of the things is take a look at your, if you're a homeowner, 
take a look at your deeds. Take a look at your deeds and look at the language in there. And this is something that as we start building out our process, we'll be doing some more engagement on this so that we can start locating where that racially restrictive language may be uh, in deeds, in what areas, because it's going to need to be a partnership between us and community to connect with us. But also, if there are, you know, the basic things, right? Um, if you come into the office and you don't feel that you've, you've gotten good service or there are issues uh, online um, that you're finding, share those with us. I mean, we have a very responsive team. Um, uh, I'm certainly getting a lot of the reports in terms of uh, what is working and what is not and asking those questions. Uh, I'm standing uh, with the public service team at times, so I have an understanding about what it's like to engage with the public and seeing what more we can do to make it a favorable experience for them. But it, but seriously, I mean, we're, we are here to serve your interests. And if you don't feel that the customer service there isn't in the right way or there's a policy question that you have, ask us. Um, uh, I love taking those opportunities to come to your neighborhood groups, um, to have those individual conversations that you can share uh, in the Twitter sphere so people have access to that information um, uh, and, uh, and, and connect with us. Uh, I want to know how best to serve you. That's, um, that's a, a, a huge and fun part of the work that we do. And then also, finally, if there are creative ideas that you think that we should be pursuing or thinking about so we can plan them in the years ahead, uh, I think that's something that I'm very interested uh, to be a part of as well. And then just going back to Joel's question, I think, Joel, you asked one of the questions around uh, around housing. What role can the assessor play in housing development? And there was one other thing that I forgot to mention. I think that's... The yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, on housing, like, exactly. Like, how, how aggressive, how much of an advocate can you be to say we need to build new housing going forward if we want to house the people that we've restricted over the well, years, I, I, right? Because without more housing, where are we going to put people? Well, I, I think absolutely that's, that's part of the role. I think we all know that more housing is needed um, uh, at all income levels to support the communities that we seek to serve, um, especially focusing on our homeless populations as well right now to make sure that the supportive services and affordable housing developments that we need are in place. But I think that one of the areas where I see an opportunity right now that's directly connected to the office Again, I'm trying to find all those touch points that are directly touching our office so that for staff as well, for them to feel connected to the work that they are producing on the street, um, that's directly connected to them, not as an idea, but as an actual tangible connection point is around ADUs. Um, and having and being able to share with, info, uh, with people what the actual financial obligation may be um, in relationship to the creation of an ADU that can support some of our housing goals. So the people who might think like, well, how expensive is it going to be for me to actually construct? How much more expensive is it going to be for me on an annual basis uh, when it comes to my comes to my property taxes, uh, I think getting that information out there, depending on what the improvements would be, what the average amount would be for the cost of creating that, what the approach is going to be to add on assessment to your current, um, your current property, uh, your current property value, and what that dollar amount may be, less than a thousand dollars, most likely, depending on the level of improvements that you might see on an annual basis for creating that unit that could create more revenue for you as a homeowner, but also help us provide more units for people in the city and county. And that's a very particular area that I'm looking forward to coming out and sharing uh, together um, with people in communities around uh, furthering that very particular uh, housing opportunity that people can pursue. Is it possible, like, it, it, it's very important, you know, to, to create those ADUs, as you said, to, it, it's a way to fill the gap of the housing needs that we have. What if the data show that it doesn't pencil out as well as, as we hope, and then and homeowners like, oh, I don't wanna do that. As the assessor, can you go and advocate and say, we need to make it easier on people 
uh, financially to, to do an ADU. Is that your role? Well, I, I think that what makes it easier uh, uh, to do that work is around the construction costs itself. I mean, what we're seeing anecdotally right now is that the additional costs, as I mentioned, we're going to be less than $1,000 depending on what the improvements were going to be to create those ADUs or um, uh, to rehab some of the areas, living spaces they may already have so they could be habitable. And I think some of the work that I can do is help sharing with people that it is not going to be some onerous um, uh, overwhelming financial obligation that works against uh, the the incentive that we're hoping to provide to you. And I think that incentive is information. And I think the incentive is also around what the approach that's currently being taken that actually does provide less of a property, um, uh, less of an assessment obligation and property tax obligation than people might otherwise believe. That's great. That's great. Like you, you can be a housing advocate for equity and for uh, for everyone to be able to live in San Francisco. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Joel. Yeah, thanks again, Joaquin, for joining us on the Gross F Town Hall. For those joining in, uh, we host these uh, regularly, uh, interviewing different civil servants and elected officials here in our government and how they engage and make our city a better place. Um, feel free to join in anytime. Check out our full list of past recorded town halls on growsf.org, G-R-O-W-S-F.org, uh, where we will publish this recorded interview for those just joining in later, as well as publish uh, future voter guides in upcoming elections as well. But thank you, Joaquin, for joining us, and uh, really, really happy to have you on this evening. Thank you so much, Bilal, and thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with all of you. And all, everyone who is listening, I hope I could uh, provide some informative information. And please do reach out if you have any more questions. We're happy to, to answer those, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Great. Take care. Have a great evening. Great. You too. Bye. Thanks, you guys. Good night. Hi, this is Sachin. Thanks for listening to the Grow SF Town Hall. We started GrowSF because we love San Francisco, and we think we can make it even better if residents learn more about how our city is run and get involved. You can learn more about GrowSF at growsf.org.